I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly. And this week, we're diving into the green notebook of James Kerr. James Kerr is an international best-selling writer, speaker, and coach who helps leaders create high-performance cultures for elite teams and organizations. He's worked with Tier 1 Special Forces, Formula 1 racing teams, Olympic athletes, and businesses such as Google and Boeing. And he's the author of the global bestseller and the book that I've called My Leadership Bible, Legacy, what the All Blacks Can Teach Us About the Business of Life. If you haven't read it or heard of it, this book provides a unique insight into one of the most successful sporting teams in the world, the New Zealand All Blacks. And I have not found another book that gives a blueprint for developing strong teams like this one. In this episode, we're going to talk about what it takes for leaders to build and maintain a culture where everyone feels like they're truly part of a winning team. And we are also going to spend a good amount of time discussing why self-awareness is such an important skill for leaders to have. And this is another one of those episodes where I've listened to several times already to capture the leadership insights. And I know that over the next year, I'm going to continue coming back to this one because James Kerr is just absolutely brilliant. And I know that his advice will help me become a stronger leader so that going forward, I can lead with the best version of myself. So please welcome to the show, James Kerr. Great to be here. I'm really interested. I, I'm taking command next summer, and a lot of what I'm going to be dealing with is, is organizational culture, You know, coming in with leadership philosophies, talking about values. And so the, the first question I have is, is how important are values, vision statements, leadership philosophies in shaping the culture of an organization? Okay, Joe. Well, I, on one level, vital but only if done right, I think. You know, there are plenty of organizations with values written up on the walls, you know. The joke I make is, you know, Enron, if you remember Enron, one of their values was integrity and, and you know, kind of look what happened there. So I think it's incredibly important to 
have those elements in place, but it's most important to be able to live them, you know, to be able to turn them into explicit behaviors, concrete behaviors. What do we do around here every day that is different from what we might otherwise do? But that whole idea of sort of values, vision statement, leadership philosophies, you know, is is really about ethos or ethos. And I think that's a fantastic word because if you take it back in time to the ancient Greeks, it means character. And character they saw is like a typewriter character, you know, it makes an impact, leaves a mark. The original kind of idea of it is it's about leaving a mark. It's about having an impact. And so the characteristic spirit of your organization will be the impact that it makes. In programming, they kind of say garbage in, garbage out, you know, through the code, through the operating system. And I think in many ways that ethos, that those values, that vision, that purpose creates the program, if you like, the operating system for the way you do things. And if you have high quality input at the front end, you get high quality output at the back end, if you like. So I think it's a vital way of creating the cohesion, the sense of direction, the connection, the values, the standards, if you like, of an organization, and it helps deliver high performance. I read something a few years ago. It was by Seth Godin, and it's really just kind of stuck with me. And he said, it's about identity. And he says, when people start saying people like us do things like this, that's mm-hmm. when you know like an identity has taken hold for good or bad, right? Like that's when the culture starts moving in a direction. And so I guess is how much does the identity of a person, like the identity of the organization kind of play into the individual decisions that people make? I think massively, you know, Humans are a sort of mimetic species. We copy each other. You know, we model each other much more than we realize or may like to admit. Um, you only have to look outside, you know, rock concerts to see the, the same outfits on many, many different people or go into, a, you know, an SF car park and see the same kind of big vehicles, you know, that, that we, we do kind of tend to... Mimics maybe not the right right world, but we replicate the standards and the values and the norms that are around us. So I think we become a product of our environment in many ways. Our environment shapes us, and equally we shape our environment. It's not a one-way street. But if you create an identity, a sense of us, of we-ness, then people tend to adhere to that code in one way or the other. And It's actually based on something that can be really unhealthy, but is also very healthy, which is around shame, actually. You know, kind of what I would call healthy shame. You don't want to let your mates down. You want to kind of do right by those around you. And so that kind of idea of kind of collective values or a collective identity, who we are, why we're doing the things that we're doing, why does it matter? What am I part of? allows people to bring their own personal meaning, their own personal purpose to that kind of collective purpose, if you like. And if you get that right, so, you know, I I wrote a book about the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team, and their collective purpose is to leave the jersey in a better place, to add to the legacy. And that chimes in very well with the personal purpose of some of their leaders, which is to be a great All Black, to be not just to be an All Black, but to be a great All Black. What an All Black, being a great All Black requires is probably winning a World Cup, a longevity of career, outstanding decision-making, a model All Black, all of those qualities. And that ties in very nicely and and, uh, with that 
aim and aspiration and that overriding purpose of the collective. So if you can get that relationship right as a leader or as a follower, I, I don't really like the word follower. I think we're all leaders in our own right. Then you have a very powerful combined identity of both the individual and the, and the collective all moving in the same direction for the same reasons. And that's sort of where the magic happens, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, when I was reading your book, Legacy, I was thinking about a lot of the decisions that the leaders, the team captains that the All Blacks made. Real quick, an aside, like your book is a gateway drug for other <laughs> reading. Like I ended up getting uh, Sean Fitzpatrick's uh, biography. Yeah. Um, after reading your book. And I was like, this is great. And I'm not even a rugby fan, James. I'm, I'll just be honest with you. You know, American football, a huge fan, but yeah. it really made me appreciate their approach. But it seemed like everything they did was deliberate. It didn't just happen. As a leader coming into an organization, and we want the culture that, that you're describing of weeness, of having a strong ethos, of just coming together. Is there a process that you have found? That yeah, there, there are many different ways you can look at it. I think some cultures grow quite organically, usually based on their kind of creation myth, if you like, the values and standards that were set many, many years ago that have been kind of perpetuated, but often they get kind of decadent, if you like. But if you want to sort of reboot a culture or start afresh, the way I look at it and the process I use is, is what I call define, design and deliver. First, you define your identity, and that really begins with values. What are your deepest values? What do you value the most as an organization? Because what you value the most is what you will pay attention to, what you will see almost. It's called the Bader-Meinhof effect. You know, if you value a red car, a red sports car, you'll keep seeing red sports cars everywhere. You know, so, so the brain is sort of attuned to follow its values in a way. So where I would start is a conversation about what deeply matters you know, what deeply matters for you? And I use a, a process called hell and heaven. You know, what does hell look like from a leadership point of view, from a communications point of view, from an attitude point of view, and from a behaviors point of view? Kind of a four-way quadrant. What does hell look like? What does a, you know, a crap team look like? You know, we've all been part of one at some point. And then you can establish that, have a good old venting session, and then you go... Right. What's the opposite of that? What does a great team look like? What does heaven look like? What does heaven look like as a leadership organization? What does it look like in the nature of the communication and the connection within that organization? What's the mindset, the attitudes, and what are the kind of explicit behaviors? And you can start to then design a moving away from state, what you know you don't want, towards something that you think collectively we do want. And I believe that's best done for those who have been in you know Afghanistan, uh, uh, you know a lawyer jerga, a conversation uh, around on a mat where everybody has their say. One of the All Blacks coaches, I think, one of the great sports coaches of our time, is a guy called Wayne Smith, and he has a lovely line where he says, "People rise to a challenge if it's their challenge." So people rise to a challenge if it's their challenge. So that idea of engaging in a conversation at every level is powerful in two ways. One, it's the beginning of learning. You get multiple perspectives. You know, you get a great 360-degree view of the organization and its culture and the issues that it faces at every aspect of it. But you also get, everyone gets their fingerprints on it. Everyone feels a sense of ownership. And that's equally important, I think. So beginning a process of definition, beginning with values, what don't you want, want to be? What do you want to be? What, what do you stand for and what won't you? And then looking at what your vision is, 
you know, clearly in your leadership term, for instance, what's your leadership legacy going to be? What do people want from you? And how visual can you make it? A lot of people make visions very conceptually, but actually, can you see it? Can you see, you know, the example I use is the difference between, you know, we want to be a sustainable company, which you hear everywhere, and it means nothing to nobody, or we want a, a city filled with electric cars. And suddenly you can see that vision, right? And a lot of the time, we, we're not very visionary in our visions. And then really interrogating the purpose, the why. Why does it matter what we do? And that holy trinity of values, vision, and purpose, I think, is the beginning. It's going to be a slightly long answer because I need to go into the defined stage now, which is then what kind of environment do you need to deliver that? And I, I call that the C-suite, clarity, connection, character, contribution. It's a, it conveniently all begins with C. Collaboration, cooperation, coordination, command, coaching, cadence, what kind of pace have you got going on, et cetera. What community do you serve? Some of those C words, you know, have you really looked at all aspects of your, of your culture and decided actually what is an optimum performance environment to deliver your mission? And then finally, delivery, what does it take to lead in that kind of organization? What, what is the best form of leadership in order to bring out the best in that kind of group? And I think if you can answer those three stage questions, you start to get to a point that your culture is humming. You know what you, who you are, you know where you're going, you know the way you're doing it, and you know how you have to be in order to deliver. And then you've sort of got your arrow pointing in the right direction. I want to go back to something you said in the beginning. You were talking about vision and you were talking about the words that we use. Mm -hmm. and, and I was thinking about a lot of the military vision statements I've seen over the years. It's like if we could find a dictionary of jargon, yeah. we'll, we'll use all of it to put in there. And it's stuff that I guess goes to our head, not necessarily our hearts, yeah. um, you know, when we're, we're trying to picture. So even the words from the very beginning are of a critical importance where we're trying yeah. to bring everybody else along with us. I think entirely, you know, we can get biblical for a moment. In the beginning was the word, was the idea. If we go back to the ancient Greek again, I seem to be kind of doing a crash course in Greek classicism, but the word idea means to see. You know, it originally means to see, it means to visualize. And if we want everybody to have the same idea of what the future looks like, we need to visualize it somehow. And I think you're right. The temptation is to kind of write this by committee and you bang every values word in there and make sure everything is kind of in that one sentence and the skill becomes fitting a whole lot of disparate ideas into one sentence. It doesn't become capturing imaginations, you know, and really capturing imagination, capturing the heart, moving people on an emotional level is the most powerful way to, to release potential. It's called cognitive congruence. If you put a, a, an anodyne statement out or a very conceptual statement filled with buzzwords, everybody in that room or everybody in your unit is going to see that differently. They're going to interpret that differently. And that's no good to anyone. What you really want is everyone to have the same picture. So if you go back, I don't know, simplistically, but if you go back to World War II and D-Day, it was take the beaches and take Berlin. You know, you could see, you could see the Reichstag or whatever it is kind of that was the the burning beacon there was something ahead that was very very clear right but a lot of the time particularly more corporately you know it all becomes about you know wishy-washy language that means nothing and that motivates no one and it's a challenge it's not easy 
to do. I'm not pretending that it's necessarily easy, particularly in a kind of in a VUCA world, in a complex world where there's the threat of shadows and no one quite, you know, and it's about deception and it's the enemy is there's a gray kind of zone and all of that kind of stuff. It can be difficult to be crystal clear in that situation. But that need for clarity, the selection and maintenance of the aim, I think it's called in the principles of war, is absolutely vital to really understand what that driving purpose is, because it opens up the horizon and it creates huge focus and concentration of effort. Before I get on to the next question, James, I, I just want to say for the record that you were the one who brought up ancient Greek in this episode, not me. Because <laughs> um, I'm usually the one that's quoting something that's 2,000 years old. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I appreciate you taking on that role this time. Yeah, well, listen, no problem. I mean, I, I mean, just on that, I think a lot of the time when you look at the cultural area, new ideas are some of the oldest ideas in a way. There's an anthropology of culture. Human beings have learned how to work together and fight together for thousands of years. And a lot of that, that sort of martial knowledge, if you like, you know, the martial arts were proven in battleships that were more dangerous, perhaps, and certainly equally as challenging and equally as complex as they are now. And Human beings, I think, haven't changed that much, although our technology has changed a lot. There's an old saying in advertising that says, technology changes everything, but human beings remain the same. And I think that's very, very true. And I think, therefore, some of that ancient wisdom, if you like, is as applicable now, if not more so, to kind of cut through the kind of our sort of pseudo-sophistication and all the static and the noise, down to the basics of what does it take for a group of men or women to connect and work together towards common cause in a difficult situation and a challenging situation. And they are truths that have remained true for a long, long time. I think it's interesting that your background is in advertising because, you know, in the, in the U.S., especially in the U.S. military, Stephen Pressfield has played a huge role in shaping yeah. kind of how, how we view leadership through his, you know, modern <coughs> take on the, on the Greeks. And Steve's yeah. background is also in advertising. I didn't realize that. It's just interesting because both of you in what you write, again, it comes back to word choice. You guys have, have tapped into this secret that it's been in front of us the entire time is that like we haven't changed in thousands of years and only the technology has. So the yeah. stuff that motivated, you know, the armies of Cyrus or you know, the, the armies of, uh, of Leonidas are the same things that, that motivate soldiers today. Well, exactly. You know, you know, we've got a bit more background. Uh, but I mean, I imagine they had the sort of history of warfare before them. And I think possibly a lot of those elements hadn't really changed. I think back to the Stephen Pressfield thing, I think one thing that advertising possibly teaches you is to kind of try to get to the nub, to get to the to the core sort of moving moment in any communication. And I think there's a huge power in that. And again, it maybe comes back to that point you made about the power of language to kick things off. If you can find that central kind of pivotal uh, narrative, then I think that's hugely motivating for human beings. We're really driven by our stories, by our fictions, by the way we frame things. And I think great leaders are, tend to be great storytellers the ability to say, okay, guys, this is where we're at and this is where we're going and this is why it matters. And to make that a kind of, to co-create that story, if you like, 
with others. And you think about the Spartans and Stephen Dressfield, I think, has written about the jokes. You know, there's a million arrows that will fight in the shade. You know, all of those kind of things are magnificent stories, narratives about who we are and what we stand for. And those stories, in a way, outlive the, you know, the Spartans weren't a particularly successful fighting force in reality. They tended to, they were small, they got knocked around a lot, they were immensely brave, and they were immensely committed to one another. But the stories outlast them in a massive way, and they become their inspiration. Hey folks, it's Joe here, and I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. I actually read this in one of Plutarch's essays probably a couple weeks ago, and it was a Spartan general talking about, somebody was asking him who would win in a wrestling match between him and uh, Pericles, and he said said something to the effect of, oh, I'm going to beat him, but Pericles is going to confuse everybody by saying (laughs) that he won. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so in the end, people are going to like stick with his story. Again, going back to your uh, your importance of stories. We mentioned the kind of the theater of shadows and the, you know the sort of this gray conflict that we're part of, and how narrative forms a large part of that. You know that ability to own the narrative and to own that story, I think, becomes a massive part of the way. You know, conflict is, isn't is won or lost on the battlefield, you know, according to Clausewitz and, and the theorists. It's, it's won or lost in the, in the hearts and minds of the people back home. And so the narrative, the story, how things happen, you know, I think becomes massively, massively important. And I think that's one of the, the shames, I guess, and I don't want to go there too hard, but around Kabul and the withdrawal and what happened immediately after that and translators and you know I know I'm I'm right in in the guts of it you know I think there are some challenges now around legitimacy and permission to operate and things like that and I think in the long term that becomes not a great space to operate within and I think understanding that story you know saying it's not going to be another Saigon and then the photographs are of helicopters over the embassy the narrative is extraordinarily important, more important perhaps now than it ever has been. And I think leaders who understand that the impact of that narrative, I think that's a large part of modern conflict and modern business even, is that reputation really, really matters and it ripples outwards from you. So what you stand for and the example that you set in all your actions aren't just the expediency of conflict, they're also reverberations throughout history, I think uh, is a massively important place to stand. 
Yeah. And there's so many different ways we could go with, with that one. And I, going back to organizations, like we talk about stories, we talk about narratives. And in the military, we have, you know, these massive like histories behind our yeah. units. And so yeah. like, you know, I know that you worked with SOF in the UK. How mm. important is it pulling those stories into the present, into our present unit to help build I, that ethos? I think really important. I think for two reasons. One, you don't want to get stuck in the past. You know, you don't want to be fighting yesterday's war. So it's a good opportunity to refresh your point of view. It's like digging into the, excavating those stories and finding out what is true for, for them today is a really powerful process and a very powerful prism to look at okay, well, if we take that attitude and we apply it to today, what would we come up with? You know, I think one of the great things about certainly UK soft units is, is they were kind of born in the desert, you know, in the Second World War. They were the product of technology, parachutes, you know, maybe gliders, but parachutes. They allowed, you know, a small group of people to fight surrounded and make a strategic difference. If you take some of those elements... You know, particularly that idea that actually that strategic strike force necessity, because I think in a high tempo environment, we get driven into a commoditized kind of reactive space much more, you know. So remembering actually this is about the ability is that sort of mission critical imperative action on a strategic level, for instance, is a really good thing to remember before, you know, before the kind of tempo of, of eternal conflict kind of grinds down to a more tactical kind of response unit, if you like. So, for instance, that's one. The second part of that is often, and I think I said it earlier, what was true then is and should be true today. Those lessons were hard-earned back then. So, for instance, I did a project with one of the units over here, the Seaborne lot, if you like, uh, over here, and we, we went into their history and dug into the founding statements. And the founder... I think I can probably talk about a guy called Roger Courtney on the first mission wrote about, wrote a letter to his men. And a lot of the truths from that letter are just as true today as they were then. And it was about don't get ahead of yourself. Uh, his thing was don't put on a Mexican hat and dance on tables and bars. I mean, that's as relevant now as it ever was, probably, maybe more so. Be the quiet professional, help out around the submarine, be a decent human being, get your kit in order. You know, focus on the basics to be fully prepared. We've got your back. All of those elements, I think, are equally true today as they were then. And I think, again, coming back to, you know, we were talking about the Spartans and we were talking about Pericles and we were talking about all of that. A lot of those lessons were hard-earned and honed back then. And I think it's a matter of taking them but reapplying them and thinking, well, what does that mean for now? You know, back then the technology was parachutes. Now it might be armed drones with different forms of surveillance. Now it might mean an app, be an app, you know, that allows a triangulation of something. You know, I don't know. You know, you know your business better than I do. But the technology now is a different technology. But, but the fact that sort of technology and tenacity are two of the key elements of a soft unit, that's as true now as it was as true then it is now. It's just how do you apply that now? becomes a question. And back to your point of how do you create a culture when you come in as a leader? I think having those conversations about, you know, what are our eternal truths and what do they mean for us now? 
are really powerful questions because you're taking something that is kind of eternal and making it, you know, present in the here and now. And that conversion from the past into the future is kind of where the magic happens again, I think. And so they're very powerful conversations, I believe. In the All Blacks, one final thing on that, and the All Blacks in Maori culture in New Zealand, uh, there's an idea called whakapapa, and it's about ancestry, that we're a long, unbroken chain of people and we're stretched from the beginning of time to the end of eternity and all linked arm in arm. And the sun has moved along the line gradually until it's found our place in this lineage, and it shines its light and it reminds us that we have fleeting time in this moment to make our mark, to write our chapter and to represent all those who have come before us and all those who will come after. So it is sort of asks of us, what will we do with our time in the team? You know, how will we make this our time in this moment and what will our legacy be? And I think that legacy is not created in the past for today. It's something that we get to kind of evolve and, and reapply today for tomorrow. And they're very powerful questions to ask a group of committed professionals, I think, because I think there's a huge degree of ownership and responsibility within the kind of groups that you're talking about. And finding ways to make that contribution to something bigger than ourselves is very purposeful and very powerful. Yeah, we're talking about the organization too, James. I'm curious from a leader level, you know, one of the chapters in Legacy, going back to the book again, is Know Thyself. And for me personally, that's something I've really gotten into in the last year or so. Again, going back to people traveling all the way to the Oracle of Delphi to be given some secret about themselves, which then helped set them up for the future. Or uh, Lao Tzu, like, like what he said about knowing thyself is, is true wisdom. And I even, I even have a book coming out in a couple of weeks called My Green Notebook, Know Thyself Before Changing Jobs. Right. But, but from what you've seen through all the organizations you've worked with, like how important is it for a leader coming in to really know themselves before they grab the guide on, before they sit in the chair, before they, you know, before they're the person at the helm of the spear? I think massively. I think fundamentally we kind of lead from within. And if you want to change an organization, change yourself first, I think. General Slim, one of the heroes of the British Army, says, you know, leadership is just plain you. It kind of reveals the you-ness of you, if you like, and you are seen. And from kind of where you stand, that's how the world looks and that's how the world becomes, in a sense. I think we're all very, we're generative human beings. The way we behave generates certain outcomes around us. So the deeper you are able to go, and, and by deep, I don't mean, you know, rumination and, you know, the All Blacks call it going bone deep, being ruthlessly honest with yourself, you know, being brave enough to take a look inside, you know. If you're driving a car and you hear a sort of, you know, fan belt flapping or, a, you know, camshaft clunking or whatever it is, chances are you're going to pull over and take a look. But a lot of the time, and we don't do that with ourselves. We don't open the bonnet and take a look inside. And, of course, things unravel and get worse. So there's a mental health aspect to it. But there's also just to know your values, know your philosophy, know what it is you're trying to do here. Ask those questions. And that's sort of a values, vision, and purpose matrix, I think. You know, and out of that is, it defines your character. You know, who are you? What are you here to do? Why does it matter? What do you stand for? 
Now, if you know that about yourself, other people will know that about you as well. You know, and there's a line I use, the story you tell about yourself becomes the story that others tell about you. So if your story is, and we've all met, you know, we've we've met people who are deeply insecure and so they try to impress. No one's really impressed. People just go, Jesus, that guy's insecure, (laughs) right? However, and you know what I mean? Uh, And, And so being able to strip it back requires humility because, you know, the job's never finished and life is never perfect and you can't know everything. And humility allows you to kind of not get ahead of yourself. Your ego doesn't get in the way. It requires, I think, a degree of courage. It requires compassion for yourself. You know, you've got to be able to go, oh, I'm a messed up unit and it's okay. And dig a little bit deeper. But it's fundamentally about understanding who you are and where you're going and why it matters, I think. And if you can know that truly for yourself, you're in a position to lead others. Because, you know, one of the roles anthropologically of a leader is to reassure and give direction to take that burden from people. And what that does, if you look at it within a group situation, is it reduces anxiety within a group. So within an elite group, if as a leader, you can create kind of certainty and a sense of belonging within that group and feel part of something special, and they feel part of something that is kind of like home for them in one way or another, All their adrenaline levels will drop, their cortisol will drop, testosterone will go up. It's sort of been shown. Now, that's an optimum performance state for an athlete, for performance. You know, you make better decisions. You have better situational awareness. You're able to stay calm and take the shot or make the decision. So creating that space, that climate, if you like, is hugely, hugely important, I think, in any great team. Happy teams tend to be good teams. There's a need for debate, but conflicts may be too strong a word for it. But a place you know you can debate, and it's safe to do that. But you need to be secure in yourself as an individual to enable that to happen. You've got to be secure in yourself to have somebody junior to you question your thinking. But a healthy environment, you want people to be, you know, it's called loyal dissent. I don't know if that's a phrase used over in your part of the world, but that idea of loyal dissent. It's important to be a dissenting voice sometimes and go, you know, if we walk into that room, bad stuff's going to happen, right? Rather than just, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags, four, sir. You know, you want to have a conversation. But that's not always possible if you've got an insecure leader who's unable to take any incoming. So I think that sense of self-knowledge and security in oneself creates a space in which other people can thrive. And that's critical, I think, for all great teams. Yeah, I really appreciate this interview today, James. As you're talking, I'm like, man, we could probably piece every five words, pull those apart and and go a different direction, you know, on it. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about building cultures, and I know I'm looking at the clock here and I know you have a, a meeting. And- I'm good. You know, just whatever works for you. Yeah. So one of the things, I guess, like one of the final questions I, I want to ask, because it's, I think it's a little bit outside the box for organizations, is that the very last chapter in your book, Legacy, is about a book given to the all-black players when they make the team. Yeah. Yep. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit from your time watching them. And then have you seen other organizations take a a similar approach to their cultures, their teams? Yes and yes, I think. Um, within the All Blacks, uh, you know, it's a lovely story about um, 
the book has an All Blacks jersey. It sort of has a silver fern on the front, beautifully produced book, black because it's the All Blacks. They dress in black. Their symbol is a silver fern that's on the front of the thing. So it's very quite minimalist, I guess. And you open it up and there's the original All Blacks jersey, the, the, the first All Blacks jersey, just photographed in black and white, you know, on a page, no words. And then you turn the page and there's the next All Blacks jersey. And then you turn the page, there's the next All Blacks jersey. And, you know, page by page, jersey by jersey, decade by decade, it's the history of the team up to the jersey they wear today. And then you turn over the page, there's a, a, a little bit about the values and the standards and what's expected. But very, very simple. And then you turn it over and the next page is blank and the next page is blank and all the blank pages are blank to the end of the book. And the blank pages are telling the players, the young players, that, you know, this is your turn. This is your team. It's your time. You know, as I say, because a legacy isn't created in the past for today, it's created now together for tomorrow. And, you know, they ask themselves, what will you bring to the team and what are you prepared to sacrifice? But, you know, what are you going to give? You know, what's your contribution going to be? And then you write your story, metaphorically and in fact, in reality, you write your story. Now, it's a very, very powerful document. And I know certainly a lot of the All Blacks and a lot of the elite teams I work with keep notebooks. They keep kind of coaching notebooks for team meetings, et cetera, et cetera. One of the best All Blacks of all time keeps, I know, keeps a gratitude diary. And he just reminds himself to, and, you know, he does it not to be a kind of, you know, a soft hippie. He does it because it helps him remain in an optimistic, positive mindset. You know, it, it primes his mind to be in a performance mindset. And there's a lot of research done around how that um, is the beginning of creativity. It allows you to see more options and more worlds, right? So very practical, simple, you know, soft skills, soft, soft skills. But the, but the soft stuff delivers the hard stuff. It primes our mind to be in a performance and an optimum performance state. In terms of other organizations, uh, I have done this with the uh, UK Tier 1 team I, I talked about. We did something similar, and there are many organizations that do a book or something like it that kind of become the spirit guide for an organization, who we are, what we stand for, why it matters. Yeah, I was in uh, like two units that come to mind for me was was time in, in Joint Special Operations Command. We had a small little book that we carried around titled Who We Are. It again, it was about the values of the organizations, very short, pithy statements, but things that, that you can remember. Like one that comes to my mind is that, you know, members of this organization are empowered to solve problems. Um, yeah. And then the time I've been in the 82nd, 82nd Airborne, you know, a very storied division in the US military has a document, Who We Are. And it, it espouses the culture and the values of the, of the organization. And, and yeah. it wasn't until I got into these, these organizations where I, I saw the power of that. And so yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested again, from, for me moving forward is, you know, how do I bring that and how do I do it effectively in the organizations yeah. I go to? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the co-creational aspect I think is very powerful. If you can create a conversation about who we are with your group, and somehow encapsulate that in something. And a book is a books are like Bibles, you know, they, they have power beyond themselves, I think. But there's two sides to it. There's the output, which is the book, and the outcome, which is really the galvanized connectedness that you can create in that co-creative conversation. 
I think are the two benefits of of creating something. You know, as 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 I said, you know, the Wayne Smith quote: "People rise to a challenge if it's their challenge." If people have been part of a conversation that they've seen that crystallise into something that is a legacy that they're going to leave behind, then they'll own that and they'll support it. They'll be the, its greatest advocates. And so, you know, it becomes a very generative act to do something like that. And as you say, it, it helps align the team. You know, if you're part of a unit and it's, you know, empowered to solve problems and you're out there with a problem, maybe just that simple hook will remind you of what your duty is in that situation or, or the permission to operate that you have in that situation. Without talking about very ancient wisdom, we talk about the Vedas, the Hindu scriptures, which are made up, some of them, of sutras, what are called sutras, which are little aphorisms. You know, they're little sayings of truth, you know, wisdom. Sutra means thread. And we sew our belief systems together with those little pieces of thread. And so those little aphorisms, those moments, are the way we can kind of construct a culture, construct a common understanding, what I call a common but uncommon language uh, that is who we are, what we're doing here, and why it matters. And so if you can ask and answer those questions, and they're not necessarily easy questions, it sounds soft, but it's pretty hardcore when you get down to it. And it makes a moral difference. You know, you know, Napoleon said the moral to the physical is as three to one. You know, culture, people are a force multiplier or the way people work together. So culture is a force, has a force multiplication effect, I believe, that it's an area that you can focus on as a leader that's beyond the kind of assets, if you like, because you know, a small committed team of people who stay up late and get up early and have each other's back and know clearly where they're going and are absolutely determined to get there and are driven by purpose, they will tend to outperform the other guy, you know? So, you know, if you want to, if you want to win, you kind of win that win with moral purpose, I believe. And James, this is amazing. I, you know, for people listening, I just tricked James Curran to consulting on my future command in the, in the guise of uh, of this podcast episode. Um, if people are listening to this and, you know, they want to learn more about you, where can they find you, um, connect with you? And then do you have yeah. any more projects in the, in the uh, works? Yeah. So first question first, the book is called Legacy. My name is James Kerr. That's with a K-E-R-R. Uh, that's available at, on Amazon and all good bookshops. So that might be the first sort of cab off the rank. I can, you can find me online. A quick Google should find me on LinkedIn or, or various other things. The book I'm working on at the moment is a follow-up to Legacy called The Legacy Workbook. And it's focused into, it's not one team story. It's the, team, it's the story of a lot of different teams. And it really looks at that define, design, and deliver process and how you know, good leaders, great leaders have worked with, with identity culture and character to deliver outstanding results. When's that coming out? <laughs> Don't ask me that soon. <laughs> uh, I've got to finish it probably later on next year, depending on, on publisher schedules and so on. I'm almost done on my first draft and then there'll be a little bit more work to do on it and then we'll get it prepared for publication. All right. I, I take command in uh, July of next year, James, in, in Europe. So I, if you could just get that done before 
before that i would greatly appreciate no problem it. at all no problem at all i'll just start i'll start typing straight away ah well th- thank you so much for your time today this again this was extremely insightful and i learned a lot from this interview so i really appreciate it uh, listen it's a total pleasure and uh, good to make a contribution and and thanks joe it's been a pleasure talking Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world, You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out and our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud, desert on my head.